My family jokes that because we live in California, we have an extra season. We've got winter, spring, summer, fall, and fire season. So uh, I've lived in the mountains a really long time, at camps and uh, also up in Lake Arrowhead. And I think there's one particular fire that sticks out in my mind, because as a mountain kid, I've actually been evacuated a few times, but this, this particular evacuation sticks out because it was just chaos. So when an evacuation happens in Lake Arrowhead, the police will come up and down your street with a bullhorn, and they will say, please leave, you have five minutes to get your things and go, go now. Which in itself, if you've been up to Lake Arrowhead, is kind of a feat that they go up and down every road and everybody gets out. And also, if you've been to Lake Arrowhead, you know that there is really one way in and one way out. So you can imagine the chaos of everyone, bumper to bumper, trying to get off the mountain. It was chaos. My, uh, my brother told me later that he saw what he thinks is about like a 10-year-old boy driving his dad's, I guess it was a Ferrari, something, down the hill, just terrified. I mean, people were just losing their minds to get out. So as chaotic as it was to leave the mountain, as soon as we got off the mountain, it just turned into a waiting game. None of us knew what was going on. They don't call you personally and say, it's safe to come home now. You just have to watch the news. And what we didn't know at the time is that we would end up being evacuated for about three weeks. So we just watched the news, we watched the news, and then uh, one day my friend called me and she goes, well, my house burned down. And I remember asking her, how do you know? We haven't heard anything yet. And she said, oh, I saw it on the news. And to remove all doubt, the car they kept panning in on, she could see her license plate. And it was just this surreal thing where it was just an eerie feeling to be stuck away from home and to know that this was going on. Well. My dad is a big lover of uh, In-N-Out, and we don't have an In-N-Out in Lake Arrowhead, so every day, I want to say it was just one meal a day, but I don't even think it was, we ate at In-N-Out. And one particular day, sitting at In-N-Out, he got a phone call, and I'll never forget, it was like 15 seconds. He hung up the phone, and as calmly as anybody could possibly say it, he just looked at us and said, well, kids, the fire's in our backyard, and they can't stop it. Our house is next. And I just felt like the whole world was caving in on me. I was 17 years old. I was already afraid of everything that was going on. And I was shocked by how calm he was. He proceeded to thank God for his double-double and also our house, <laughs> whether or not it was burned down. And I just remember thinking everything was spinning. My friend just lost her house. We're next. There's so many what-ifs, so many fears, so many things going on in my heart. And dad just kept saying, trust God, he's got it. And it's not that he didn't feel anything. I know that he was upset too, but he was just calm and steady. He meant what he said when he said he trusted God. Isn't it hard to be calm when all you see around you is chaos? Isn't it calm, or hard to be calm when you just see all the what ifs and it's just not looking good? Well, as Christians, we know that we are going to face difficulty. We're going to face difficulty in our circumstances. We're going to face difficulty in our relationships, even to the point of being promised that we'll be hated for being Christians. And sometimes, isn't it kind of hard to look at the forecast of the future and not freak out when all you can see are the what-ifs and the scary moments, those things that cause worry and fear and trepidation? Well... How do we be calm? How can we have a steadfast confidence in God that he is in control when all we can see is chaos? Well, I think our passage today is going to speak directly to that. If you haven't turned there yet, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. And as you remember, so far we see Yahweh telling Pharaoh to let his people go. He promised to deliver them. He's told Pharaoh to comply, to obey. And so far, we've seen multiple signs and now three plagues. And Pharaoh consistently says, nope, not going to do it. But God is not surprised by this. We know that he actually said this is exactly what would happen because God, the entire time, had a bigger picture in mind. He was about to prove to not only his people, but to the Egyptians and to the whole world watching that there's only one God that deserved their trust. Let's pick up in verse 20 of chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 20. Then Yahweh said to Moses, 
Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. And notice what he says in verse 22. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, and you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign will happen. For the first time, we see Yahweh making a distinction. I love that he's making it personal for Pharaoh. Your people, my people. And just like he said, he sent the swarms of flies, and they ruined the land. They covered everything. Look at verse 24. And Yahweh did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by the swarms of flies. I've grown up hearing this story of the Exodus, and I'll be honest, I never really understood how flies could ruin the land. That didn't make sense to me. But the Lord and his kindness always helps me understand in really tangible ways. Uh, when I was in college, because I was stupid and immature, I really liked pranks, dorm pranks. And so one day I got a, a taste of my own medicine where the boys on the wing across from me bought 5,000 ladybugs online, and they decided to come and unleash them into our hallway. My room was right next to the exit door at the end of the hall, so I bore the brunt of the ladybug prank and I can still hear them crunching in the carpet as we're trying to walk across our room. And our closets didn't have doors, so we're shaking them out of our clothes. They were in my bed. And I used to think I liked ladybugs until um, this happened because they have this nasty orange liquid that they secrete that actually ruined some of my clothes. It was terrible. But the thing about the ladybugs that surprised me the most is that they smelled so bad when they died. We were sweeping them and vacuuming them, and I'm just talking 5,000, 5,000 ladybugs. At the time, I thought that was kind of a prank that wasn't going to turn out well, but it ended up being pretty horrific. Imagine, imagine what the Egyptians had to deal with. Swarms of flies, so much that they couldn't even see the ground. I imagine that it was pretty horrific. And just like the Bible said, there were probably a lot of things that were ruined because of these flies. Well, it's no wonder that Pharaoh freaked out and wanted the flies to be taken away, and he begged Moses to go tell Yahweh to take the flies away, make it stop. And so Moses did, and sure enough, when the flies were taken away, we see Pharaoh again hardening his heart. He's not gonna let the people go. So God, again, responds to Pharaoh, and says, this time, the next plague's going to be even worse. This time, all the livestock that's in your field is all going to die. All of them. We're talking horses, donkeys, cows, all of it, gone. Now, that's a pretty horrific plague. But once again, God made a distinction between Pharaoh's people and his people. Look at chapter 9, verse 4. Chapter 9, verse 4. But Yahweh will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And Yahweh set a time saying, tomorrow Yahweh will do this thing in the land. And the next day, Yahweh did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Once again, God's distinction was clear, as was his command to obey, and Yahweh refused. He continually refused to submit, so God again sent another plague. This time, Yahweh told Moses to grab a handful of soot from the kiln and throw it in the air, and it became a fine dust that fell all over the land, and so every person and animal that was affected by the dust, broke out in painful sores and boils on their skin. 
These just keep getting worse and worse. And yet again, God made a very clear distinction. Look at chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon who? The magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as Yahweh had spoken to Moses. Pharaoh hardens his heart again, refuses to obey Yahweh again, and again, we see that Yahweh is going to send another plague. But before he announces what he's about to do, he pauses just for a minute, and he lets Pharaoh, and subsequently us as well, know why he is doing this, what the purpose in these plagues were. God's revealing his motive here. Look at verse 13. Chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Well, Pharaoh already knew there was a distinction between God's people and his people, so why reiterate it? Because God was making a very clear point about his motive. Look again at verse 14. So that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. With each passing plague, the distinction between Yahweh's people and Pharaoh's people was deeper and deeper and deeper. And we like to think that maybe the plagues is what created this chasm between the two people. Now, Egypt and Israel are distinct because of the plagues, but it wasn't that way. Israel was always distinct from Egypt. And I want us to think for a minute about how the Egyptians must have seen the Israelites. Think back with me to how they even came to Egypt in the first place. In Genesis, we know that, that Pharaoh, not this Pharaoh, but a previous Pharaoh, had elevated Joseph to power because God used Joseph to spare not only his people, but the whole known world from famine. Joseph was elevated and, because of his position, was able to give his family any land he wanted in Egypt. I think it's interesting how many times in Genesis it says that the Israelites were given the best of the land. The best of the land, the best of the land. I'm sure the Egyptians weren't thrilled about a band of about 70 people, 70 foreigners, coming into Egypt and then being given the very best of the land, the fertile area up in the delta called Goshen. Not only were they foreigners, but on top of that, they were shepherds. And over and over in scripture, we see that the Egyptians hated shepherds. They were an abomination. And most uh, scholars say that's because they would sacrifice the animals that the Egyptians worshiped. I guess that would kind of be a problem, right? They didn't like that. And then on top of that, they had totally different religious beliefs. The Egyptians worshipped a whole pantheon of gods and they were superstitious almost about making sure the gods were pleased. And here is this group of people, a simple shepherding people that refused to worship their gods and they only worship one god. It had to have been frustrating to them. And now we see the plagues only make it more and more intense. That distinction is so much clearer. It's almost like God's putting it on display on purpose. Look at the difference. Look at the difference. Can you just hear the Egyptians? This is your fault. Our land is ruined because of you and your God. Get out of here. Or how about worship our gods? Please the gods. Make this stop. Why do you have to be different? Egypt and Israel were always different. They were always distinct. The plagues just made it way more intense and way more visible. They were hated by the Egyptians. They were hated by Pharaoh. And yet, it didn't really matter because they had the privilege of being aligned with Yahweh. The same is so true for us today. We have the privilege of being aligned with the only God. And it may not be popular. People may think that it's our God or our beliefs that is ruining our society. We might get blamed for things. We might be made fun of or frowned upon or whatever, but it doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks. To be aligned with God is a privilege, isn't it? And I want to write it this way for our first point. 
If you want to have a calm heart in a chaotic world, you've got to align yourself with God and expect rejection from the world around you. Expect rejection from the world. Well, as a mom of daughters, uh, we don't care about sports. We just don't. I, uh, sent, I think I sent my daughter to school in a ballet costume for sports day once, and that did not go over well. Um, well, we don't play competitive sports, and every once in a while, the girls will play games with their friends, and you can see them picking teams. And it is hilarious to watch my younger daughter especially, because when somebody comes and steals the ball or does something offensively, you know, she still takes it personal. She's like, I can't believe you would do that. Like, she's offended by the offense. And so we have to remind her, honey, this is a part of playing the game. You're going to face difficulty here. Come on. And as, as silly as that sounds, how often are we like that in our Christian walk where we align ourselves with Christ, we know we're on his team, we're Christians, and yet when somebody opposes us or disagrees with us or even makes fun of us, we're shocked. We're offended. We're hurt. How did this happen? How could this be? It's very interesting that as Christians, sometimes we forget that we've been set apart, we've been made distinct, we've been called to God's team. And we've got to remember that we will, in fact, face opposition. That's just the way it is. And I want us to think back um, as, a, as a, a way to give courage to our own hearts. How does God see his people? What does he say? Look back with me, you will, at chapter 8, verse 22. Chapter 8, verse 22, God speaking, he says, But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell. Set apart. I love the wording he used. That word, set apart, means to treat excellently, to mark something as different, either physically or perceptually. God very much sets his people apart, and he does it on purpose, perceptually. He wants everybody to see that they're different. And more than that, look at verse 23. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. And that word division surprised me. It's a really cool word. It literally means redemption or deliverance, the act of delivering from slavery or trouble. As God is distinct from all other gods, so his people are. He sets them apart. He marks them his own, and everybody could see it. And then on top of that, he redeems them for himself. He paid the price. And that theme of redemption is all through scripture. We see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, that in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. He has saved us. He's paid the debt that we owe. We've been bought with a price. That's redemption. God redeems his people. It was true for the Israelites. It's true for us now. He paid the penalty of our sin. He set us apart, and he does it for himself. We become his people. He now owns us. I love how Peter describes this in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. When we rightly understand the privilege of what God has done, he picks us up, he sets us apart, he redeems us with his own blood at such a cost to him. It should change our perspective. It should change our perspective greatly. Instead of kind of being half afraid that people might know we're Christians, it should inspire some sort of confidence in us that we get to be his. And it doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks about it. I love that Peter says that we should proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into light. Because that is the very same thing we see in Exodus 9, verse 14. The same exact purpose, the same reason, the same motive, why God redeems his people is so that, look at Exodus 9, 14, so that the world may know there is none like him in all the earth. 
Those who are redeemed by him should proclaim him. There's no such thing as an undercover Christian. There's not. But if we're being really, really honest with ourselves, it's that rejection, it's that consequence of being aligned with him, that's the very thing we fear, isn't it? It's the hostility, it's the discomfort, it's the conflict, it's the worry of all the things we could lose. It's that, that very thing, that rejection that we often actually fear more than we fear God. And as believers, we've got to kick that fear. We cannot let that be true of us. We've got to be committed to align ourselves with God, and it shouldn't matter what it costs us. And it might be easy to say that we're doing well in this area, right? But we, we don't face large-scale persecution, so ask yourself this. Are you willing to align with Christ even in the small ways? Think of it this way. If you are at work and your friends are in the break room and they're watching the news or whatever it is and somehow Christianity comes up and they start mocking Christians and laughing, do you sit in the corner and eat your salad and just kind of smile and hope that nobody knows that you're one of them? Or if you're in the grocery store or Target and there's like 100 people around you and your, your kid starts asking you a question about the Bible or says something about Sunday school, do you try to kind of hush him because you feel awkward? Or what if you're in high school or college and you've got a professor or a friend that says, you know what, to be a Christian is actually promoting hate speech because you say that the Bible's the authority and it's not inclusive of all lifestyles. What do you say? Ladies, if we can't stand with Christ, if we can't align with him in the small ways, let's not fool ourselves that when the big things come, we will not buckle to the chaos. We've got to stand with Christ in every little way we can. We're promised that we're going to face difficulty, and that can be kind of a daunting promise, but I love what Jesus says to us directly in John 16, 33. He said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Just like we're promised that we're going to face persecution and trouble and conflict, we're also promised peace, but it only comes in Christ. That's the only place you're going to find peace. We have the record of the Exodus sitting in our laps, right? We have the privilege of having the written record of what happened. Spoiler alert, they all are freed. Eventually, God will free his people, just like he said he would. But I want us to think for a minute, right now, in our passage, just right here, how did the Israelites feel? Because right now, in this chapter, these chapters, they're not free. They are slaves. They're living in Egypt. Pharaoh's still in control of them. He's not letting them go. And yes, they're seeing miraculous things happen. They see God's deliverance. They see God's protection. But they're still slaves. Their full deliverance has not yet been realized. Think for a minute how scary that would be. Months of watching these plagues go by, looking out your window and seeing swarms of locusts, even if you're not affected, wouldn't that be kind of scary? They had to actually believe that God was going to do what he said he was going to do, that he was going to take them out and free them, but it wasn't realized yet. That had to have been scary. They had to remember that God was doing everything on purpose. This was right on time. This is just what he said he was going to do. Look with me at chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. Look how God talks to Pharaoh. Chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Israel had to believe that God was fully in control and that he did indeed have a purpose and that he was fulfilling that purpose, just like he said in verse 916. The same is true for us. We live in a world where people don't love what we believe and they definitely don't love our God. And it can feel hostile, it can feel uncomfortable, but the reality is we're not home yet. Our full deliverance has not yet been realized. We see God at work, we know his word is true, but we're just not there yet. So we, like the Israelites, very much have to remember that God does have a purpose and he is working it out. Let's write it this way for our second point. 
We need to know that God has all things under his control. God has all things under his control. When we were told that our house was going to burn down, as a 17-year-old, I was old enough to know that this was not a good situation. This also meant that our evacuation vacation was gonna be longer, what do we do? Uh, you know, do we buy all new clothes? What if the school burns down? What do we do? And so I told my dad all the things that he could worry about. And I can still picture him just being like, I got it, trust me, stop it. But I was so scared because while I felt all the emotions of it, I had zero control. I couldn't stop my house from burning down. And as a 17-year-old girl, I couldn't even buy my own double-double. I was fully dependent on my dad to take care of us while we were waiting to go home. And he did have it under control, and he just kept telling me to trust him, even though I felt scared. And the reality is, I did trust him, because I knew him. Deep down, I knew that my dad was not gonna let us sleep on the street, he wasn't gonna freak out, he was going to take care of the details, we would go home someday. And it was a comfort to me, because I knew my dad. And the same is true for us. We've got to trust our Heavenly Father as he takes care of us and leads us home. We have to. We might feel afraid. We might feel all the emotions deeply, and yet we're not in control. He is. We've got to trust him. Even if we can't see what's coming, it's okay. We don't need to freak out. One of my favorite quotes is Corey Ten Boom's, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. The more we know about our Father, the more we trust him. It's just the way it is. It's so painfully simple and yet true. We've got to know our Father and we've got to choose to trust him. And the more we know about his character, the easier that becomes. These couple verses right here in the middle of our passage are such little gems of truth where God speaks to us about himself. So what I want to do is I want to pull a few things out of these verses to look at so that we can learn more about God's character so that we can trust him more. Let's start in verse 14 of chapter nine. Chapter nine, verse 14. God says, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people. Did you catch what he said about the plagues there? My plagues. God takes ownership of their plagues. They're his. He is fully in control of every single thing that happened. Think about it right down to the tiny gnat that obeyed his command. He was fully in control. Why? Because he made it all. He's the creator of the earth. He sustains the earth. And guess what? God can do whatever he wants with what he's made. He's fully in control. Nehemiah 6 says, you are Yahweh, you alone. You've made the heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that's in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Not only is he fully in control of the earth that he has made, not only does he preserve the earth that he has made, but he's also in control of every person that he has made that lives on the earth. Listen to Acts 17, verses 24 to 28. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. It should be a comfort to know that God is the creator of life, he's the sustainer of life, and really he can do whatever he wants with all the things he's made, including you and I. Look at verse 15 again. Speaking to Pharaoh, he says, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Ooh, that can be hard for us to swallow. But again, God has the authority to do whatever he wants to do with the people that he has created. Think of it this way. If God were to cut off every human being from the face of the earth, 
he would be perfectly just even in doing that because we know crystal clearly in Romans 3 that every single person is marked by sin. We are all sinners, and the wages of sin is what? Death. He would be perfectly just even if he did that, but God in his loving kindness chooses not to deal with us like that. He redeems us instead. We've gotta know that ultimately God is in control of our life. He's in control of the day we're born. He's in control of the day we are to die. And he knows every day in between. Psalm 139.16 says that he knows every day that we're going to live before we're even born. He's in control of life and death. And look at verse 16, chapter 9, 16. But he says, for this purpose I have raised you up. I love that word purpose. For this purpose I've raised you up. The purpose of God, his plan, what he wants to do will always be accomplished and will never, ever, ever, ever be stopped. Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And Isaiah says, in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isn't it a comfort to know that whatever God is going to do, his plan, it can't get messed up? Isn't that encouraging? And more than that, it was his purpose to raise Pharaoh up to power. God is the one who ultimately is in charge of who's even in power in the world. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. I love that mental picture, just doing whatever he wants, even with the rulers of the world. Isn't it a comfort to know that even the government that is in charge over his people is ultimately subject to his sovereign plan? Isn't that a comfort to know that his purpose will not ever get messed up? Ultimately, we can know that if we are God's people, ultimately, he's going to work everything out for our ultimate and eternal good. We see this so clearly in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But what is his purpose? Look at the end of verse 16. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power. Why? So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That was the point. All of this was for God's own glory. He wanted the whole world to see how great he was. That was his purpose. That was his plan. Starting with Israel, and then in Egypt, and literally the whole known world watching this, God was going to make it very clear that there was none like him. He was concerned most with his own glory. And ultimately, that should be true for us too. We should care most about his glory. That's his purpose. That's why he did this. But we know that Pharaoh was not interested in God's glory. He was interested in his own he continually hardened his heart. He continually refused to obey Yahweh. Look at verse 17 of chapter 9. God says to Pharaoh, you are still exalting yourself against my people, and you will not let them go. I love that God just gets straight to the point here with Pharaoh. Here's the problem, Pharaoh. Pride, you are exalting yourself. Ooh. God was going to deal with the pride of Egypt. He leveled the pantheon of gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Every god had some sort of thing that they were in control of, be it animals or plants or fertility or whatever, and God laid them out. He completely decimated them. Anyone who would pray to or worship an Egyptian idol after the plagues would have been an idiot. It would have been absolutely foolish. And God did the same exact thing to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was considered to be son of Ra, God in flesh. So not only was he the king of Egypt, but his subjects... They worshiped him as deity. No wonder Pharaoh was so frustrated that God also laid him out and made it really clear to everyone watching that he was not great. He was not powerful. 
and there was nothing that he could do to stop Yahweh's plagues. He was so frustrated because he refused to acknowledge that God was in control and he kept exalting himself. Pharaoh stands as a human warning for us to see. We can see the consequences of his sin pretty clearly. We see how devastating it was, but we need to make sure that we are not falling into the same patterns, even in small ways. We need to make sure that we don't elevate ourselves, but we elevate God, that we care about more, more about God's glory than we care about our own glory. Let's word it this way for our final point. We need to resolve to exalt to God no matter what. No matter what. Well, Pharaoh hardens his heart, so once again, God's going to deal with him. This time he sent hail, uh, raining down with fire and killing every single thing that was outside. Animals, plants, it said that even broke the trees. This was a hail that was very unusual. But once again, he spared his people. And look how Pharaoh responds in verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and he called Moses and Aaron and he said to them, this time I've sinned. Yahweh's in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with Yahweh for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You will stay no longer. Ah, it looks like Pharaoh's finally starting to get it. He actually even said that he was wrong. But I love the way Moses deals with him. Look at verse 30. Chapter 9, verse 30. Moses says to Pharaoh, but as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. That might seem kind of harsh coming from Moses, but I love that he, he knows what's going on underneath. He has reason to doubt the genuineness of Pharaoh's repentance, so to speak. Look at verse 34, or excuse me, 31. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and the emmer were not struck down. They were late in coming up. Pharaoh knew that he would still have food. His penitence was fake. He just said he was sorry so that he could get what he wanted. Look at verse 34, chapter 9, verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as Yahweh had spoken. When he got what he wanted, he hardened his heart. He was again stubborn and he refused to yield to Yahweh. He refused. And look how God responds. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of the servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them, so that you may know I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Yahweh and they said to him, that, or went into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. You see, Pharaoh's refusal to obey God had disastrous consequences. God even further strengthened the hardness of his own heart. And why? Because God once again had a purpose in mind. Look at verse two again. Chapter 10, verse 2. That you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them so that you may know I am Yahweh. Once again, God is concerned with his own glory. That's what he cares most about. And he's going to get glory from punishing Pharaoh and his wicked hard heart. And he's going to get glory from his people proclaiming his name and telling their kids and their grandkids how awesome he is. God cares most about his own glory. And yet again, Pharaoh doesn't care about God's own glory. He refused to humble himself. So another plague would come. Look at chapter 10, verse four. God says, for if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can even see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of your servants and all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on the earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. I don't know if you've ever seen a locust. I personally haven't. But they look very similar to grasshoppers. They're a couple inches long. They're 
hideous. Grasshoppers are also hideous. Well, once again, the Lord in his kindness allowed me to understand this particular passage a little more personally. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we went to Tennessee to visit my, uh, my family. And while we were in Tennessee at Doug's mom's house, I decided to take a shower the second day we were there. And then I felt something land on my shoulder in the shower. And it was a, about four or five inch long grasshopper. I was pretty defenseless at this point and feeling kind of vulnerable, and I couldn't even see the grasshopper because my contacts were not in. So you can imagine the screaming and the commotion that happened until Doug came down and caught it. And I'll never forget Doug holding it up and being like, oh, look at that. Can you imagine your house being filled with this? And I was just laughing. I, I lost my mind coming up against a singular grasshopper in a well-sealed modern house and for the rest of the time, it was, it, was, it was surprising how it much unnerved me, I guess you can say. We're out walking around in town, and my kids would be like, Mom, there's a bug, and I'd freak out. It, it really bothered me. This plague of the locusts would have been horrific. Can you imagine? Not even be able to see the ground. But not just psychologically damaging, like a grasshopper. They ate everything. They completely decimated the food supply in, in Egypt. And I actually resonate with Pharaoh's response here. Look how he responds in verse 16. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron, and he said, I have sinned against Yahweh your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with Yahweh your God to remove this death from me. He begged God to take the, the locusts away. Pharaoh confessed he was wrong. He asked for forgiveness. Seems like a good sign, but was it genuine? Nope. Because once again, we see that he was not going to let the people go. He didn't act on it. And this is a huge warning for us as well. Repentance does not equal admitting we're wrong or even asking for forgiveness if our life doesn't prove there's been a change. His repentance was not genuine. Neither is ours if we don't change. Well, a final plague was levied at Pharaoh, this time with no warning. Look at verse 21, 1021. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. I'm sure we've all had that experience. You can't see your hand in front of your face, but I love how he describes this. A darkness to be felt. It was thick. And this would have been terrifying on so many levels. We don't know how long in between each plague um, there was, but let's just say there were some plants that grew back after the locusts ate them. What would three days of no sun do to plant life? What about three days of pitch darkness for animals? They probably were acting kind of weird. We've seen that with the um, solar eclipses that happen. Animals do weird stuff when they don't see the sun. And even just the psychological damage that this would have caused, this would have been terrible. And the Egyptians felt it very much so. They got this message loud and clear because they associated darkness with the realm of the dead. To them, this was more than just not being able to see. This was a foreboding terrifying sense of death that was imminent. And that's exactly what it was. The implications of this plague were not just physical, they were spiritual. God was, in fact, making it very clear that what would come next would, in fact, be death. This was a foreboding warning from Yahweh to the Egyptians. Death is coming if you do not exalt Yahweh. Well, after this, we see that Pharaoh tries to make a deal with Moses. I'll let your people go as long as your animals stay here. And I love how Moses responds, not a hoof is left behind. We're all going. So Pharaoh, in total rage, responds to him in verse 28. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me and take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. What a sad end this. Pharaoh had been given nine warnings, and God was about to break his spirit. There would be one more plague, and it would crush Pharaoh. But to this point, we've seen him not respond, not 
repent, not yield to Yahweh. Why? All because he loved his own greatness. He refused to exalt Yahweh. He exalted himself instead. And I think he stands as such a huge warning to us, especially as the majority of this passage is about Pharaoh's response. I think we would be remiss to not take a look at him and make sure that there's nothing in our heart that resembles this kind of arrogance towards God. Especially if we are to pray that God keeps us strong and gives us calm confidence in the midst of chaos, we've got to make sure that we are responding rightly to our God. So how do we do that practically? First of all, how many times did God make it clear that what he was concerned about, his purpose, is that everyone would know about his greatness, his glory, his power to save? This is no different now. For us, we need to unashamedly love God and tell everyone about his power to save. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also the Greek. When you choose to talk about your awesome God and how powerful he is to save us from our sin in the midst of a world that absolutely hates what you have to say, that is exalting God no matter what. Also, you've got to keep your eyes on your eternal home and not give up. Don't lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says... So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Just like Israel had to trust that Yahweh was going to deliver them, fully and lead them out of Egypt, even though they just weren't quite there yet, we have to do the same thing. When we keep our eyes on our eternal home and the things that actually matter, and we choose to trust the Lord will lead us home and do what we can to please him instead of getting caught up in the here and now, that's exalting God no matter what. And finally, we've got to turn our panic into prayer. We have to. We can't freak out. We can't go through all the what-ifs and all the fears and look at the horizon and project doom and give up. We've got to turn every little piece of emotion into a prayer to God. When we do that, we are exalting him no matter what, no matter what comes around us and no matter what we feel. Isaiah 25.1 says, Yahweh, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. And then in Isaiah 26, 3, he says, you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Ladies, when you feel like things are chaotic, and you feel like you're struggling to stay calm, you've got to remember who your God is and what he has done. You've got to keep your mind fixed on him and choose to trust him. When you do that, you're exalting God no matter what. I told you that my family was evacuated and uh, we eventually did get to go home and my house did not burn down. Our back railing did, but our house did not. And it was just a weird experience, but I, I want to I play a different scenario in our minds. What if that day in In-N-Out, when my dad hung up the phone, he had responded in a typical way? What if he just put his hands on his head and was like, oh, I can't believe it, it's gone, and threw his double-double across the room? What if he had done that? All of us would have just said, well, dad, trust God. Come on, you say you trust God, do you? And how stupid would he have felt looking at the house and being like, oh, there it is. I wish I wouldn't have thrown my hamburger he would have felt silly. He didn't pass that test, right? But the reality is the way we act really lets us know exactly how well we trust God, what the quality of our trust is. And I want to I picture a different scenario. I know it's cheesy, but bear with me. Facing a very different kind of fire, think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When the king told them to bow down to his idol and worship, they refused. Worship or die, we'll throw you in the fire. 
And remember what their answer was in Daniel 3? I love it. It said, our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we'll never, ever bow. That is the attitude we should have when we think about the conflict and the hostility that we might face from the world. Even if our house burns down, we're not going to freak out. Even if our friends hate us, even if we face conflict, it doesn't matter. We will not bow. We will only exalt God. Ladies, the quality of our trust is going to be revealed when we face hard times. We will face hard times. We will face difficulties in opposition. We'll face difficulties in our circumstances and in our friendships and our relationships. It's sure, you will face it. So when you do face those things, those things that are hard, that inspire fear and doubt, make sure that you remember who your God is and you trust him and you are willing to exalt him no matter what you face in any possible capacity because he really is in control and ultimately we've just got to care that he is the one that gets the glory because what we know now is transient. We will be with him forever. I pray that will be true of all of us. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word and for your kindness that you reveal anything about yourself to us. And thank you that you reveal to us your power and your perfection, God, that you give us hope, Lord, that you tell us who you are so that we can hang on to you and our soul is anchored in the storm. Lord, I pray that you would give us each a deeper desire to know you, Lord, a deeper desire to please you and honor you, and a deeper desire to see you get the glory that you deserve, God. I pray that you would give us courage, that you would make us strong, that when we feel scared and we don't know what's coming or the future seems scary, Lord, that you would settle our hearts with the peace that you can give us, God. I pray that we would be committed to exalting your name, Lord, and that we would be excited to see you get the glory, Lord. Thank you for this morning and thank you for these ladies and I pray that together we would run hard for you, Lord, and you would get glory from us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>